Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. You motherfuckers. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm putting cases on all you bitches. Huh? You think you can do this shit? You think you can do this to me? The great impasse has spoken! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man! I'm a very good man! Good man! Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, we're kind of like a non-romantic couple. Are you up for some <laughs> orgasmic meditation and genital touching later? later? Um, as long as I wear gloves before I rub your clit. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's not going to, it won't, the intimacy, we won't be able to establish that if you wear gloves. <laughs> Well, you didn't read the paper. That's a requirement for orgasmic meditation. Um, is gloves? Do you? Yeah. I did read it. Yeah. I, I think I skipped yeah. over the gloves part. Yeah, it's a, it's a requirement, even if you're in a romantic relationship with a person. Um, uh, you, you can choose the material, though. Oh, see, like a little like leather <laughs> or, or spandex or I don't know. Like I mean, this is a whole new thing. I need, like I have to put on my to-do uh, list now. It's like, what yeah, kind of gloves? Corduroy, like? corduroy would be my <laughs> Get a little friction. <laughs> Get some uh, friction burns. <laughs> for the clit, yeah. So what we should say that in the second segment, we have Paul Bloom coming on the episode to talk about a William James chapter, Instinct. Yes. Um, yep. From the wonderful Principles of Psychology. <laughs> but the oh wait, I want to say this. I have to say this. The audio is yeah. fucked for that segment. I mean, not though it's not terrible. Like you can it's, you can hear it, but we had to use Skype audio for me and Paul. Um, I'm right. not going to say whose fault it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so good of you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. So before we we get to Paul, neuro neurocritic, neuroskeptic. Sorry, sure. neuroskeptic. Wow. How could you forget that? I know. I'm sorry. There's a neurocritic. Sorry, neuroskeptic. Um, gave us <laughs> gave no, us a not, no more <laughs> genital touching for you and neuroskeptic after this, or maybe you need it. <laughs> uh, you you put this in our in our little file for opening segments. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you you. Uh, so this is a paper called "Partner Intimate Touch is Associated with Increased Interpersonal Closeness, Especially in Non-Romantic Partners," and it is authored by Nicole Prouse, Greg Siegel, and a friend of mine, actually James Cohen, who hosts the Circle of Willis podcast. So I'm I, I'm sure he'll be a good enough sport to the Circle of Willis. The, yeah, Circle of Willis. I'll put a link to it. Um, is it named after still, like I don't know if he's, different strokes? I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was going to be the what you talking about podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what you talking about, Willis, but then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then they, they realized that would be appropriation. So they, they, they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so this paper, okay, I'll give just like a, a brief synopsis. So can I just say before you give the synopsis oh, yeah, yeah. that yeah. Um, you said like, why did I put it in Slack? I feel like mm-hmm. this paper, this idea, this study, like there, maybe even the researchers' careers were all put on this earth to just give us this episode. So like <laughs> like this opening segment to talk about uh, like that it, it, they don't know it but that's why they exist exactly they have purpose that whole discussion we had about the absurd and life being meaningless yeah. but for them it's not it's for not them, it's, it's just for clear. us it's just, it's just for the rest of us uh, um, so yeah so this is this is a paper where I mean, I actually think it's motivated by a good question. So they, they say, look, sex is uh, associated with all sorts of good stuff. Sex and, and sexual touching and all that is associated with all sorts of good stuff in romantic relationships, right? So like satisfaction with uh, relationships, overall happiness, like all that stuff. And there's good health outcomes if you have sex, um, although apparently not more than benefits tail off it over once a week. So all you need is one once a week, and you're getting yeah. all the all the positives. I mean, that's um, still pretty good, right? <laughs> but from but when but they review the literature and show that uh, or argue that non romantic relationships, sort of like sex with people who are your friends or just a hookup, that kind of sexual contact is actually associated, especially in women, with all sorts of bad bad outcomes. So uh, non romantic sexual contact is not only stigmatizing in many cases. But it's also associated with, with just poor mental health outcomes, I guess, as a generality, right? Um, and so what they wanted to see is if they could get the benefits of sexual touching for non-romantic relationships without all of sort of the risk and the bad outcomes. Because as they say, a lot of the risk for women in these non-romantic uh, hookups is issues of consent. You don't know, you know, there's risk. Uh, in catching diseases or getting pregnant, there's issues. If you if you're out there hooking up with people, there's issues of consent. You're more likely to put yourself in a situation that that might be bad for you. There's all sorts of reasons why it's risky for women, and so they wanted to see if they could come up with a way to <laughs> to have sexual touch in non-romantic relationships without all that risk. So they turned to orgasmic meditation, which is, I guess, had you ever heard of this? <laughs> not only had I not heard of it, <laughs> but I was completely shocked that this is a thing like I had no idea like if somebody like I, it seems like it's kind of out of a Charlie Kaufman movie or something like like or at least because that's like I just didn't know that this was you know this was something that like is established it's not like they made, the, made this up like this is an established like therapy technique right yeah because they were able to recruit 125 couples through a variety of means who are already regular practitioners of this um so yeah, I'd never heard of it before, but it's like a standardized procedure where it's always the woman getting touched, hence my clit jokes at the beginning because there's no dicks being touched, um, where a partner, romantic or not, female or male, um, brings uh, their, their partner, the person getting touched, and they, uh, they sit down. It wasn't clear to me if it's in a group. I don't know if it's like, <laughs> which makes Yeah, or like, are they doing it just... Like, like who's yoga giving mats? them like the yeah. time signals and stuff? And right, the, right. Um, um, and maybe there's they, like a little ding or something. I don't know. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, should we just read it? 
you should, it reads like a bad erotica. Exactly. That's, I had the same thought. Exactly. Like it, it's it's bad erotica. Exactly. Do you want me to read some of it? Or yeah, just read some highlights of it. I just think okay. it's like it's it's. This is why I say that. Like I'm really surprised that this is the thing. Is how detailed and how ritualized it is. Like I guess standardized yeah. in in it's ways. Standardized. That, yeah. And this is one of the the reasons they they use this as the procedure because it is so standardized. But yeah, so here's I'm gonna I'm gonna read just some of the key key parts. Orgasmic meditation is a practice where partners engage in a practiced series of consent, safety signals, and 15 minutes of manual genital stimulation. The the person getting stroked, the strokey, gets naked from the waist down. Uh, they take off their shoes. The stroker takes off their shoes as well. Um, the strokey lays down with their with their legs. Their, they let their knees fall to the side, and the stroker sits right next to them. Um, and here's here's where it starts. <laughs> next, the stroker announces that he or she is about to rest their hands on the strokey's thigh. The stroker then briefly describes the appearance of the woman's vulva using value-neutral terms, such as its shape, color, or texture. The strokey acknowledges this <laughs> observation typically... <laughs> no, no, that's value-laden. That would be- typically by responding, <laughs> thank you. Then the stroker dons gloves of agreed material to provide a physical safety barrier regardless of the status of the couple. The stroker applies lubrication to the left index finger and right thumb. At this point, the stroker announces that he or she is about to touch the strokey's genitals. The stroker places the right thumb at the introitus, not inside the vagina, where it remains throughout the simulation, stimulation period. The purpose of this placement is to aid stroker to feel contractions or other movements. The stroker places the left hand with the thumb holding back any clitoral hood and the left index finger stroking <laughs> besides the clitoral shaft. So this goes on for 13 minutes, and key crucial in this is that they get feedback from the person getting stroked and um they can request like fast or slower or touch their touch rate the stroke key may um, request adjustments at any time which are always followed by the stroker and are acknowledged by the stroker saying thank you it sounds like getting your tires rotated or something. You're just like, eh, this one feels a little wobbly still. Can you just... <laughs> oh, yeah, or like yeah. some kind of like medical procedure or something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then at, thir- at 13 minutes, there's a two-minute warning, which just reminded me of like the old <laughs> Laker games where you say, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, They go yeah, into the yeah, no-huddle yeah. offense at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Take a knee, man. Take a <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, audibles are kind of like the adjustments. Yeah, you know? right, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, I think key to this is that any additional contact, like hugs or anything that is prohibited during orgasmic meditation, um, they it's they're, the only thing they're allowed to say is uh, the feedback, the direct feedback, and they're allowed to moan or pant, etc. Um, <laughs> they're allowed to <laughs> moan or pant. Like, what were they gonna do? Like, like panting prohibited, but they're yeah, allowed. To. They just have to be biting their tongue. Like the outcomes. <laughs> also, like it's Physical. like it's so detailed. At the end of two more minutes, the stroker covers the vulva with both hands with gentle pressure, allowing the vulva to close. The stroker uses a clean washcloth to wipe up once over the vulva to remove any fluids, but just once. Yeah. The strokey I feel like if up. I were writing this, I would I would be getting a little turned on. <laughs> or like I would never want to have like sexual contact <laughs> with anyone again. Uh, but they and then they take turns describing the like the things that occurred. 
afterwards. Um, yeah, that's right. The stroker and strokey take turns describing a concrete bodily sensation because you're supposed to focus, you know, just like other meditation, you focus on the sensation. So temperature, vibration, location that occurred during stroking. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then they throw away the gloves and washcloth. <laughs> the gloves and washcloth are discarded. Like, so, so. what if they asked, like, this was really important, this was really meaningful, and I feel much closer already, like, um, to the, my partner, can we just keep the gloves and washcloth? <laughs> nope. <laughs> no. Nope. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. You have to, those people were eliminated from the sample. <laughs> Give me the, it didn't say this, but it was like seven couples refused to discard the gloves like, and were thus removed. <laughs> Give me the gloves. <laughs> Give me the fucking gloves. <laughs> um, so, th- so key. I don't even know if the results matter that much. The the key dependent variable is this um, this measure called inclusion of self in other, where um, it's it's a scale that's been used by a ton of researchers. But basically, uh, it's it's thought to reflect interpersonal closeness. Two circles are labeled as self and other. The circles begin as non-overlapping and progressively overlap until the two circles overlap almost entirely. Participants are instructed to select which of the seven images best portrays their relationship with their orgasmic meditation partner before beginning, then after the orgasmic meditation. And so what they found was that closeness went up a lot for the non-romantic uh, partners more than for the romantic partners. However, if you look at the graph, the romantic partners are all just higher in both conditions. They're clo- obviously right. they're closer to each other. Um, so but, the big you know, increase was uh, yeah yeah. I I better feel closer to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a few questions just about the whole like setup of this and and the fact that so many people went into it. Like if you're a non-romantic partner. It feels like part of being not romantic is that you wouldn't like sign up to do this. That's what seems odd to me too. But apparently some of the people even are in a romantic relationship, but they go to this with someone else, which I, I think qualifies as cheating, yeah. but you know, I'm not going <laughs> to judge. That's <laughs> interesting. I mean, they might be in a polyamorous relationship. Who knows? Um, yeah, and you have compersion I mean, for her as she's right. getting her uh, <laughs> genitals right. rubbed for exactly way, 13 minutes. For exactly 13 minutes. Uh, 15. Oh, no, 15. Two-minute right. wording. Yeah. Two minutes, right. That, then, it, then it gets, like, really, really vigorous. Yeah, and the goal, they, they say, I think, I didn't say this, the goal is not, they say physical climax may happen, but it is not a goal of the orgasmic meditation process. Maybe Although they shouldn't call little, it that, that <laughs> you know? I, yeah. <laughs> I would feel a little disappointed if I didn't get it done. That's you know? exactly. Like, that's why they have the two-minute warning. Like, get your fucking ass <laughs> rubbing. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, 125 partners did it. And, like, half of them were non-romantic. Yep, you know, right around. It's weird. Like, would you do this even with a romantic person? No. Like, No, I don't, I don't like, think my partner would want me too I, I mean this is you know like the you we Let's just say know she did. who these people are what? <laughs> no, no i wouldn't we know who these people are you could just these you know the room smells like patchouli and lube you know like this is <laughs> right these are people in in their 50s and 60s i'm sure um uh although we have the age the age data here um one of the things that they don't really um Talk about well, they talk about it as a limitation. I like that. Oh, there's a great limitation line. Does it have to be no touching or like clitoral stimulation? Like they should have a control group where they just shake hands for 15 minutes and maybe you might get the same thing. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. 
I mean, of course you're going to, if you just went through like the weirdest, like creepiest experience of your whole life, that is going to bring you closer. But if you just yeah. shake hands and like talked, it's like, well, it's like you're, you're, you're meeting in a bar or, you know, whatever. Right. So in one of the limitations, this is what I wanted to read. Uh, additionally, only women received the stimulation, although the stroker could be male or female. Therefore, the generalizability of this result to male strokies remains unknown. So that's the stu- that's the very bad wizard study that we have. To this run. is. I feel like you could just <laughs> you could just stand outside uh, certain massage parlors and, and questionnaires. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Right, Josh Nope, just handing people coming out of the. <laughs> I feel like Any that joke needs to be clarified because because Josh is very likely to hand out questionnaires in public, not because we know that Josh is outside massage parlors. He's there anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. Oh, right. uh, that does require context, though. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, so yeah, by the way, the average age was forty-two years old. So we're okay. we're uh, we're we're on the old age of the sample. We're on the old side of the. <laughs> We've like wasted our life not doing this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, it's like weird, no, but maybe it's like I don't know. Like it seems like it's an established something, right? Like I feel like so, for someone who's so into meditation, you you should be pro this. Yeah, I mean, the kind of meditation that I've been doing involves just me and not like <laughs> so selfish That's gloves. So selfish of you. <laughs> I wear gloves when I jerk off because I. <laughs> How would you not crack up during it? I don't know, man. Do you have like a I clock? Mean, Is there like a clock, like like you know, like in uh, like a basketball yeah, game where there's just they, like a? They said that it was the time was kept by a computer and announced by a computer. So, <laughs> so it's like an exam. You're like, yeah, twenty minutes. minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, good, good for them for doing this. This, uh, yeah. I hope this uh, helps non-romantic couples get um, closer. Feel closer. You know? um, I, it is weird because I feel like if you were already going to do this with somebody who's a non-romantic partner, I feel like you would already be pretty close. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. You have to be pretty close. They didn't just grab them from, you know, from the parking lot. Hey, you guys hooked up like last Saturday night like, <laughs> at like five Sig. So, uh, here, come do this. That's like, they're, they're just like, they'd be like, what are you talking about? I agree. Like, I, it's hard to imagine not being a romantic partner with somebody, but you're having sex and you're doing, you're willing to do this. That's, I think. Yeah. Well, they weren't, they weren't necessarily having sex with each other, they, but they, oh, they, they could be just, no. So this, they definitely had done at least one, um, orgasmic meditation with each other before. So we know that. Um, actually, the response options are, how would you describe your relationship with the person you're doing orgasmic meditation with today? And the options included a male or female who is also my prim- primary romantic partner, a male or female who is a previous organic meditation partner, but not my primary romantic partner, someone I am considering as a potential romantic partner or other. Okay. But I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think the data is broken up that way. They only break it up into current romantic partner or not. So we don't really know if they've had sex. But um, they've done orgasmic meditation before. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's this weird, like, there's this weird mirror world out there of, like, these kinds of things that you run into every so often where it's like, I had no fucking idea that this went on in the world that I live in. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I know people will do fucked up 
sexual things. But like yeah, right, this right, right. It combines but, but, like that with like being in like a scientific study of, or, or just a clinical environment. I will say, I think I'm just, I think I'm actually, this is a result of my puritanical upbringing that I, I mean, maybe this is just, hey, it's just touching. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, it's yeah. not, it's, it's, but it's touching in a lab, like with like these time, like yeah. time limits and like, like clothing requirements and, you know, I don't know. If that you feel, like if I, if if we could keep the washcloth, maybe I would do it. But I don't you know. <laughs> you <laughs> have to discard the washcloth. Wash <laughs> you keep buying it; it's not worth it. Right? If I could go home with like a new washcloth, which you could always you can always use in the house, um, <laughs> I might be open to it. Yeah, dust know. rags come from somewhere. <laughs> All right. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk to Paul Bloom about instincts. Too bad that he didn't, uh, that he couldn't have been a part of this. <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is sponsored once again by our friends at BetterHelp. Tamler, I know you, and I know you probably have a list of people that you wish would use BetterHelp. How, how many people are on that list, and is, is it me? Uh, um, well, let me go down to the P's. Hold on, so I can see if... <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, you know, no, I, cause I feel like I'm your better help, you know, <laughs> that's true. That's true. For people who don't have a Tamler in yeah. their life though, if you're feeling, uh, anxious or stressed or angry and you can't let it all out on your podcast co-host, or if you're having trouble in your romantic relationships, don't do orgasmic meditation um it's better that you go to better help <laughs> online counseling <laughs> no gloves required you, no yeah you don't need gloves you just <laughs> all you need is your your fingers to dial the telephone and that's all you need your fingers for um BetterHelp lets you get help from a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your own time, at your own pace, on your own schedule. You can get therapy over video chats. You can get them over the phone. You can text with your therapist. Um, all of this, you'll be up and running in under 24 hours talking to somebody who can help you with your specific needs. BetterHelp is available in all 50 states and worldwide, so there's really no reason to not connect with a licensed therapist if you're feeling like you need to. It's secure, it's convenient, it's professional, it's even affordable, but if you can't afford it, they have financial aid. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com VBW. All you'll need to do is fill out a questionnaire. They'll assess your needs and put you in touch with a therapist. So that's betterhelp.com VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment. We love to take a moment and thank all of our listeners who get in touch with us in the various ways that you do on Twitter, on Reddit, on Instagram, Facebook, even um, rating us on Apple Podcasts. Um, it's, we really appreciate it. Um, we, we, we've gotten some, as usual, we've gotten some really nice emails lately and, um, yeah, we, we really appreciate the community that's built around this podcast. If you would like to contact us, you can tweet at us at Hamler at peas or at very bad wizards. You can email us very bad wizards at gmail.com. You can join the subreddit, um, reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards. Um, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and rate us again, rate us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on Spotify. I think that's we think that's good, even just, you know, yeah. if it's not like it, it seems like it is to us. So we really appreciate all of you. Yeah, we appreciate everyone. And if you would like us to support us in more tangible ways, if it turns out that subscribing to us on Spotify does nothing <laughs> and you'd like to make sure that, that you want to support us um, in ways that aren't superstitious. Um, you can head over to our support page. Um, just go to verybadwizards.com and click on support and you'll see the various ways you can support us there. We very much appreciate our Patreon supporters. You can go directly to patreon.com slash verybadwizards and there you'll see that there are various tiers in which you could support us um, at $2 and up, you will get uh, my beats. I'm actually, Tamla, I didn't tell you, but I'm almost done with my Beats Without Rhymes compilation, volume five. And that's just actually $1. Uh, that's at the $1. Oh, that's the $1. Oh, here yeah. I thought you had valued my Beats. Either. No, no, we devalued it like two years ago or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and our $5 and up supporters, um, you will get our actually $2 and up supporters get our bonus episodes. $5 and up supporters get to vote on what episode topics we're going to choose. Um, what is that coming up soon? Yes. Do we have another vote coming up? I keep up? saying, uh, yeah. yes, soon, very um, soon. And our $5 and up uh, supporters get to listen to our five part Brothers Karamazov. Uh, series that we're very, very proud of. Um, but you don't even have to be a $5 and up supporter to listen to that. You can also go directly to Himalaya, sign up for their service, and uh, or pay a one-time fee and download that series there. You can also support us by buying t-shirts or sweatshirts or hoodies. You can go to our merchandise page and there you'll see a link to our Cotton Bureau page. And coffee mugs are in the work. Right? Yes, that's what I was going to say. Coffee mugs are in the works. In fact, I have a prototype. <laughs> I've been in the basement like Tony Stark making <laughs> prototype coffee mugs. <laughs> I think I finally have the final design. So thank you to everybody for all the ways in which you support us. We really, really appreciate it. And yeah. One last thing. We just released a bonus episode. Um, we just released mm. a bonus episode on The Sopranos, um, one of our favorite episodes um, from Such season one, episode. college. Uh, you get access to all of our bonus episodes when you sign up and also ad-free episodes uh, at any level of support. So, yeah. Um, on to our conversation with Paul Bloom. Um, all right. So 
we're very happy to bring in Paul Bloom, our most popular guest. So, Paul, you, we had a little exchange, I guess, on Twitter that I thought was fairly innocuous. I was making fun of uh, Richard Dawkins for this tweet that he tweeted. Science is not a social construct. Science is truth were true before there were societies, will still be true after all philosophers are dead, were true before any philosophers were born, were true before there were any minds, even trilobite or dinosaur minds to notice them. Um, And I just quote tweeted it, although I did actually quote tweet it and didn't just take a picture (laughs) of it, because this is what it reminded me of, is Denzel Washington Alonzo at the end of training day just kind of ranting you know, he runs shit. He's the police. You just live here. I'm going to put cases on all you motherfuckers. <laughs> Y'all are going to be playing basketball. And then you responded. I mean, to yeah, it. Well, I he's right, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, like, I what's, the, he's right, what's right. the problem? You know? And then all of your uh, all of your followers uh, attacked me, <laughs> which I I will. To be fair, I didn't look at all of what they said, and, but maybe you can summarize. So so um, I said, and then somebody said very sensibly, look, his first claim, the first sentence about science not being a social construction, is very poorly put because there's in some sense where science is a social institution. We didn't always have it, and there's some sense of social construction plainly a social construction. And I said, yeah, but the rest of it's fine. I got different responses, including people. I, I love philosophers, but including people say, well, you know, there's 19 forms of scientific realism in a certain complicated tension. Something could be true, yet not objective and nonetheless transcendent in time. But historic. which of this in this matrix is Dawkins talking about? And, you know, there's a sort of a professional jealousy that he's talking to scientific realism. If I get in the words right, but I think he's telling the truth. You, you agree with him. Well, but, but what is interesting about the truth that he's saying? Like, who is the target here? That's my question. He's subtweeting. Right? Like, I think he's subtweeting philosophers. And so what he says, I think I agree with is tr- it's true that things, you know, rocks were around. What before. philosophers? Like what view is he uh, subtweeting? Though? No, no, just, I think philosophers, I think in, in the Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's just like, fuck philosophy. Like science is the truth. So if he's saying fuck philosophers, I'm not on his side. I, you know, philosophers are great. Tamler, do you think there, there exists no people or there don't exist a lot of people who would deny what he's saying? Do you think he's just a straw man? Everybody there agrees are, there's, there's like, objective scientific truths in the world. You mean like that the earth revolves around – like I don't, I don't know what kind of truths he's referring to. But I, I do think that like most people are realists about the external world. And if you're a realist about the external world, then you think that um, there were facts that were true before we got on the scene. I mean, I know there are idealists and I know there are solipsists, but yeah. is, is that like what is that all he was saying? Because then it's like, well, unless you believe we're all in the matrix or unless you believe, you know, we're brains in the vat, this is kind of obvious and nobody disagrees with you. But it seems like he has an agenda against some kind of like postmodern critical thought or something like that. And I just don't know what he thinks that is. So you think what he's saying is obviously true. And what's annoying is that he's saying it because who would doubt it? Yeah, that, that, that there are facts that were true in the world before we came into the picture. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I keep, people deny I keep, that. I keep bumping into people who deny it. I would say is what well, do they it's say? More, it's, it's more well. I'm not the ideal person to to present this view, but they would say the facts themselves are socially constructed. That um, that the idea of um, 
objective truths existing independent of people and that we can grasp such, such objective truths well, is that, naive. Okay. Well, so that's a different question, right? Like whether we can grasp them. So the fact that there are objective truths, I don't think anybody really, I'm sure there are. I mean, there are people who have, who inhabit every possible yeah, position. Enough. But like, it's a very big gap between there were these truths and we can grasp them um, in a way that's not filtered through our own way of perceiving the world and understanding the world through the construct of science. And so, but if he's saying that, the, that science is actually getting at those truths right now and we're learning about them in ways that aren't filtered through this apparatus as well as our perceptual uh, I know I sound almost Kantian here, but the way that like the, the cat, I'll just say it, the categories um, <laughs> through which we perceive the world, like then that's more controversial. But the, but yeah. I don't see him saying that exactly. I see him saying the more obvious or uncontroversial thing. OK, some of some of your followers seem to think he was mistaken, not just about the first sentence, but in general. But, you know, if 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 you were just teasing him for saying something obvious an attempt to sort of an, an, an attack against imaginary opponents you know fair enough well i think there is I, I, some a controversial yeah. thing that he's saying there which not just the science is a social construction i mean the science is not a social construction part but also if he's making an appeal not to the ontology not that rocks existed i think this is what tamler's saying but rather that uh our acquiring knowledge of physical laws is and like that are that are say understanding of of particle physics um given our models like that this is tapping into reality when i i think there you people would say well like no theories ever can describe that external reality but he seems to think not only that science is for sure capturing that reality which i actually tend to agree with but whatever um but he's also he also seems to be saying by omission that science is the only thing that can capture truth. And I think some people are yeah. are, are sort of objecting that, like, well, you know, there, there are all kinds of truths that science can't capture. Moreover, they are there are socially constructed things that are objective and true. So like what the like what not only is he not saying that much in terms of like the obvious part is what people would agree with, but the part that is broader and might actually be more content to what he's saying seems obviously false. It would be false if he was saying science is the only way to capture truths, for instance. And his inclusion yeah. of like versus philosophy in there is what made me yeah. think he was subtweeting. So he's over against philosophy. Like you might think philosophy is acquiring truth, but here's what's really happening. Science is, you know, capturing to be Kantian the noumenal realm directly with our with our little probes <laughs> and our <laughs> with our little devices. We've 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 you know cut through into the noumena. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I, right. And if that's what he's saying, then it is controversial and interesting. It's just not a clear, there's no way to defend that position in the tweet. And it's not even clear that he's doing that. That's but one thing, one thing he says, which I think is fair enough, he says, he's not saying that current science actually has captured the truths um, yeah. or, or that everything we're doing is right. He's talking more in terms of sort of the goal of science. I think it's a, it's a reasonable goal. Yeah. But, but his, his target is definitely postmodernist thought as he understands it, as somebody said, his, he's targeting people who think two plus two equals four is racist or, or imperialist or something. And I don't think there are those people, not really. There was a debate on Twitter yeah. a few months ago uh, where people said two plus two isn't four because you know you could put um, two dogs 
and uh, two um, <laughs> two two treats in a room, and then the dogs will eat the treats, and it's two plus two equals two, and <laughs> I, I and, and it was like yeah. this mutual storm of mutual trolling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, these are people yeah. who are on purpose not trying to understand each other. Which, yes. which is like, you know, the, the original tweet was making an interesting point about like the assumptions that go into uh, a claim, like a statement, two plus two equals four. But then yeah. everybody fighting against the like, but no, but if you give me two apples and I and then two more, of course I have four apples, you fuck. And it's just a willful talking but past each other. It wasn't up to Twitter normally high quality of, of gender. <laughs> just to extend it, because I, I think everybody agree, everybody should agree with Dawkins when it comes to like physics. But I will tell you, I saw this thing on again on Twitter where um, either Eric Weinstein or Brett Weinstein was on Clubhouse, of which some of us here are members of. And he was in a room, and this was like recorded, and the clip was put on Twitter where he was, uh, he at one point he was asked, are you an evolutionary biologist? And he said, yes. And then the response was something like, you know, so that's just because you're a eugenicist. <laughs> Same thing, right? Yeah. He said, uh, no. And that was the whole clip. But, but I wonder whether Dawkins is thinking about something like that. Well, I think once you've been the victim of unfair attacks, which he was back when I think he was doing interesting work like, you know, selfish gene, extended phenotype and like Richard Lewinton and people like that mm -hmm. attacked him for being like a genetic determinist, which was totally unfair. I think it does tilt you in a direction where you, you can go full full on crank. And that kind of is what happened to him. That plus his just antagonism towards religion. It's it's kind of sad to me because I really, you know, he was a real inspiration to him, to me early on. And now he really just does seem like the, you know, get off my lawn, uh, <laughs> like old guy, like that's just, that just hasn't even bothered to like read up or, uh, interest himself in anything like new that's, that's happening, but still feels like he can shit on it. I have more love for him than you do, but I would agree his his books, The Blind Watchmaker, The Selfish Gene, and Extended Phenotype, are and then those three are yeah. works of genius, genius, creative genius, beautifully written, thoughtful, brand new ideas and everything. Yeah. And then there's um I guess there's a notion of comparative advantage, which is I wish Dawkins wrote more books like that and fewer books about God, just because a lot of people writing about God and a lot of people writing about about poetry and science and social constructivism and whatever. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and they are better than him at understanding that stuff. I, I, I get the sense with Dawkins is my mild defense of Dawkins as well, is that unlike someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I think is, is weirdly more trollish about philosophers and, and more yeah. disparaging of them. I think Dawkins, this is just a point of frustration, sort of like Tamler was was describing. Like he, he, I think he's, he's got to a point of frustration where he's like, can't I just say science is true and that's that? But what really gets to me is, and this might sound pedantic, but I, I think you guys will agree, is that the, the loose use of words like science, uh, but particularly the word objective, um, there's where like philosophy actually does bring some use to the table. Like there are objective truths that are completely socially constructed, right? Like it just is true that three strikes and you're out yeah. of baseball. Like, and yeah. that is objective. And, and that kind of loose language is what makes me think, man, if only you just opened up a little bit, to, like I don't need him to be a philosopher of science, but just open yourself up a little bit to why people might think you're being sloppy with your language and maybe saying something that is misinterpreted. It would help. Like they're trying yeah. to do philosophy. They're just 
they're they're like you know what they are they're a bunch of people who watch MMA and then go in their backyard and try to punch each other and it's like <laughs> you know like the MMA <laughs> uh yeah not that philosophers are MMA fighters <laughs> and to be fair we criticize uh uh philosophers for bringing in science irresponsibly like our you know sideways music like this is another yeah. case of oh, you know, the, the sideways <laughs> music episode we get a lot of email about that like you know people who, who are like mathematicians who, who just like want to tell us how extra wrong that that paper was <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah th that's also a case of you know watching mma is you know some philosophers of science who, who then want to toss around these words as, as if they mean something which is you know they're smarter than me but i'm not trying to do that <laughs> by the yeah. by the way that episode um you also talked about a paper called something like why childhood is bad for children yeah yeah, yeah. and as a result of that you guys were, were pretty negative you put it kind of in the same categories you're sideways i think it's worse and <laughs> i loved it i loved the paper I, you're, you're, it motivated me to read the paper assign it at a lab meeting and we had a great conversation about it. how it's really interesting if we were on some like uh, what's the not family feud like match game thing or whatever where I had to predict whether you would like something I would have predicted that you would like that it is kind of in your contrarian kind of sweet spot uh, I see uh, I see it's like uh, the dating game yeah the dating game <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, um, all right so should we tell people what we're talking about yeah <laughs> oh yeah so Paul this was your uh, well we wanted to talk to Paul about William James um, and Paul, you picked his chapter in the principles of psychology on instinct, but give me, uh, give us a little bit of a background with you. You said that you hadn't really ever read William James, which is weird to me because I've heard you quote him all the time. So I take it you're just an irresponsible scholar. Um, <laughs> Paul rolled his eyes. There are actually 19 <laughs> kinds of William James. A... <laughs> um, no, I've, I've read, um, I've read Stephen Pinker who quotes William James that's right, that's right. And, uh, and there's a wonderful quote, uh, which I got through Steve and I, that I use. I never read William James. I never sat down and read anything William James. And I got into it because you guys had a, a great episode on habit, on his chapter on habit, which was like, you know, you were reading aloud from him. You had great quotes. It's you know, a really interesting idea. So I really was excited about the idea of delving in. And, you know, I, we were talking about this a bit. I went through his book and some of his stuff, like he has a chapter on emotions, which I think is kind of dated. He had a very particular theory of the emotions and it's not right. That we still make, kind of, we still make people learn that. Yes. It's weird. Yes. Yeah. But I think that, I think mean, there's a lot of stuff to read. Yeah. So, well, okay. But I was very interested in what he, what he had to say about instinct. And I got to say, I, I love this chapter. I love it because it bears on contemporary debates about nativism and empiricism, which continue to rage. Um, I love it because there's all of these local insights that he has. You know, I was saying we could just spend the whole time reading back and forth different, different wonderful parts of it. Um, and I think he has some true and interesting things to say. In a style, in a sort of observational style that nobody writes nowadays. Yeah, and uh, and I, I I love his style, but and and also because um, he begins, he has the quote which everybody uses, which is a wonderful introduction to psychology, to what's going on in psychology. Um, I don't know if one of you do you want one of you want to read it out, or do you want me to to start with it? Yeah, go ahead. Which yeah, go for it. Yeah, it, it, this is a so he starts with a series of questions. Um, why do men always lie down when they can on soft beds rather than hard floors? Why do they sit around the stove on a cold day? Why in a room do they place themselves 99 times out of 100 with their faces towards the middle rather than to the wall? Yes, several goes on. And then he says, you know, well, you know, nobody, nobody asks these questions in everyday life. You know, no, not one man in a billion when taking his dinner ever thinks of utility. He eats because the food tastes good and makes him want more. And then he says, 
It takes, in short, what a, what Berkeley calls a, ma- a mind debauched by learning to carry the process of making the natural seem strange, yeah. so far as to ask the why of any human act. To the metaphysician alone, can occur can such questions occur as and go, why do we smile when please will not scowl? Um, why are we unable to talk to a crowd as we talk to a single friend? And then he says, you know, you, you, your average person is going to say, well, duh, it's obvious. And he goes on to say, well, every animal probably thinks, if it could think of it, of its natural behavior is obvious. We have to make um, make the natural unnatural. We have to think like metaphysicians. And that is an excellent, that is at the core of modern psychology. You know, why can't, why does it, why is it harder to remember a um, uh, hundred words, hard to remember a hundred words than five words? Why does, uh, you know, why do, do, do fat and sugar taste good, but but rocks and dirt don't? You can't just say, well, duh. You have to say, well, you, we have to do what Newton did apocryphally when when he says, you know, why does an apple fall from the tree? Right. Right. Yeah. I like uh, one, one of his examples in this vein. He says, why does a particular maiden turn our wits so upside down? The common man can only say... Of course we smile. Of course our heart palpitates at the sight of the crowd. Of course we love the maiden, that beautiful soul clad in that perfect form, so palpably and flagrantly made from all eternity to be loved. Like, he's really got his pulse on the common man. <laughs> yeah, he got the common. By, by the way, this is none of this is addressed to the common woman. It is yeah, very clear. Yeah, yeah. He has a, a very a very cis hetero <laughs> as his ideal listener. He gets into some some of those sex differences as well. So I I wanted to I was really interested to talk to you about this in particular because you know I think Paul you were probably my introduction to the big empiricist versus nativist uh, arguments in cognitive science and in philosophy psychology. Um, and, uh, of course you are of that crowd. You're of the Chomsky Pinker Bloom lineage who firmly believes in a lot of the mind has, you know, these innate, probably modules. Um, but that, that means that a lot, we come into the world with a lot. And I remember, you know, there is, we often refer to James's empiricism. We talk about James's empiricism. And so having not read James in a long time, I was actually surprised at how much he put in, into this, uh, you know, instinct psychology. And what I was going to ask you is, is this at all, is this capturing some of the flavor of modern day nativism? Yeah. I think the, the language is very different. Um, but it captures the flavor of modern nativism in a few ways. First thing, it allows for learning, of course. Yeah. And I think I think your observation is right. I think it's just the fact that these are such empiricist times mm-hmm. where everybody, everybody in the end, most psychologists miss Skinner. They, <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they would, oh, too bad. I wish everything were learned. We'll have to cope with, with, with the alternatives and everything. And he was at, one, at the same time res- deeply respective of learning, but also said, you know, man has all these instincts, way more than any other creature, right. in fact. And, yeah. and what goes so much goes on in our lives is overriding the instincts and, and adjusting them. And there's, there's kind of a muddle, a bit of a muddle where he defines instincts in a very narrow way as triggered by certain stimuli and give rise to certain behavior. And then immediately gives that up and gives all sorts of examples that don't fit that at all. But he talks about instincts like, uh, like the instinct to acquire objects, the instinct for language, the instinct for resentment, the instincts for certain fears. And yeah. so on the one hand, he gets he, his list is a good one. And on the other, and, and and similarly, he's um I think he's sensitive to evolutionary concerns. I don't agree with all of his interpretations, but he says, well, why would this be adaptive and this not be adaptive? He talks about what Mr. Darwin has to say. Right. I'm I'm surprised that everyone thinks of him as an empiricist from this 
as well, because it seems like even when he talks about, you know, sometimes we override an instinct, we do it, he says, from another instinct. It's like they're doing battle within us. Right. And so, like, he gives the example of the toad where a a boy um, will, you know, do horrible things, just torture a toad. Which I, I didn't know. Like I, that was not part of my childhood. It was torturing. he repeats this over and over again. Yeah, I don't think really is trigger warning. But there's a whole <laughs> lot of boys ripping apart animals in this. System. Yeah, but then he says maybe um, the first time you know when you do it once or twice, and then all of a sudden as his you know it's taking its last breath and whimpering or something in a in a toad like way, then you start to feel sympathy, and then you associate the that that feeling with um, tearing apart the toad. And so next time that instinct of sympathy will clash with the instinct of wanting to tear apart the toad and maybe even override it, but it's still instinct in the end. It's just now this instinct trumps that instincts. So yeah, I guess I've sort of so just to clarify, so that nobody emails us in anger about my misuse of what, what James's empiricism is. I think that, when people say that James was an empiricist, he was talking about sort of epistemology in in the yeah. the like the only way to acquire knowledge about the world is through sensory experience. And it just turns out that by doing that, we can see some of these things that are instinctual. But in the in, I'm trying to think now in the categories of what are instincts, you know, he defines them kind of as behavioral impulses. I don't think he's talking about innate categories of knowledge ever, is he? No, he's not. You're right. You're right. That's interesting. There's, there's, so, so just two thoughts. One thought is he's empiricist philosophically, but also psychologically. And your, your other episode on, on habit captures the sort of two sides of this, where he talks extremely intelligently about how we learn things and how that works. And also here talks about instinct. So, you know, together there's sort of a nice psychological package, but you're right. He talked, when he talks about instincts, the fuzziness I talked about before is he originally defines them in terms of, uh, of, um, determinate stimuli in contact with the animal's body, giving rise to some sort of behavior. Then a few pages later, later, a few pages later, he gives examples of greediness and suspicion, curiosity, timidity, coyness and desire, bashfulness and vanity. Those are not the sort of simple instincts. But you're right, he's not a nativist like like Immanuel Kant. Right. Or he does not he doesn't talk about knowledge at any point. Right. Right. Although so I don't know, uh, Tamler, your your question was different, but I want I interjected with was your question. Yeah, about, yeah. I mean I guess I'm just wondering to what extent some of this stuff is disputed. I, I imagine that some people will think it's too universalist, yeah. um, that it doesn't take into account culture um, and environment enough. But I, it strikes me that no one will deny that we have some basic instincts, right? And then the debates have to be over the details of them and how malleable they, they are. Yeah, but I mean, this goes back to our Dawkins conversation almost, which is that that you could say that and at some level it's true. But I know a lot of psychologists who would say, well, you have baby reflexes. You know, you put your finger in a baby's palm, it will squeeze. But instincts of the sort, like an instinct to construct things out of blocks, an instinct to possess, it was crazy. Yeah. No, all of that emerges through cultural experience, our neural networks, our predictive encoding, or some single general magical bullshit that's supposed to explain everything right and i think I'm that's sure. i think that's the yeah. dominant view in yes. in psychology and yes. i don't know if in developmental psychology but that is certainly so like in my in my department um you know that's just what most most people believe that there is no 
yeah, they're baby reflexes, but everything else can be explained through general purpose mechanisms that, acquire, you know, they're very sensitive to statistical regularities in the environment, and right. you get both language and a desire to construct and greed. All of that stuff just comes from, uh, yeah, and it's it's always, it strikes me as pretty dog a pretty dogmatic view, but I think it's driven in part by a desire to build computer models that mimic human thought. There's a great line by Dan Dennett, um, which I, I respect Dan Dennett a lot, but I think this is a terrible argument, where he talks about passing the buck to biology. And and he says basically, well, you know, when you say something's innate, his target was Jerry Fodor here, when you say something is innate, you're just saying psychologists don't have anything to say about it. So you're saying you're throwing, passing the buck to evolutionary biology. Isn't that awful? Shouldn't you want to sort of deal with it yourself? <laughs> but the obvious answer is, well, it's like a fact of the matter. Like, you know, it may be, you know it's, it's, not, it's not saying it would give us less to do. If X is true, therefore we should believe X is false. Right. And um, so, so let me just try to like narrow, like pin down this view. Then, so what do they say about something like fear? Because fear does seem like an instinct that is pretty pervasive, and it doesn't seem like it's just something that babies have. Um, if anything, they might have it a little less than um, than, well, than comes later. So, so Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a friend of mine, uh, is a very prominent motion researcher, and she would say the very category fear is socially constructed. The idea that there's such a thing uh, uh, as fear that all humans possess or other animals possess is just a confusion. We have these broad, valenced reactions to things, and they get that funneled and everything. And honestly, I, I respect her work a lot, but I think James is much more on the mark when he talks about innate fears and how they develop. But yeah, so, he, like, he's a man of his day. Fear of snakes or something like that, which is something that seems pretty built into us. What is the what is the counter view to to something like that? That uh, uh, that we've yeah. overestimated the the fear of snakes. So I, yeah. the argument is that um, kind of like what James is saying, it seems so so natural to us um, to fear snakes, especially as adults, that it's hard for us to imagine. But you know, babies are fine with most things <laughs> like it's now that doesn't mean it's not an instinct, which is another subtlety you know, like an instinct might emerge later in life. But I think, I think that the, the standard answer would be we've radically overestimated the degree to which we come into the world with fear of snakes and heights. And, you know, there's some, there's some work on that. Yeah. yeah. And the but, alternate explanation is we just, what like people te we learn that snakes yeah, are something we, we to be learn, afraid we learn, of we, we learn from others i mean there, there's a sort of regress in a lot of these arguments as well kids notice that their parents are afraid of snakes yeah. well like the then, visual cliff experiments are a great a great yeah, example that's right. in the visual cliff that's experiments right. wherein a baby is put uh on a table that's uh has a glass top but half of the table doesn't have a glass top and it has a tablecloth so it looks like it's a drop-off but it's not really it's safe um if the if the mother it looks at the baby and just says come on come on like then the baby will go like the and so it seems as if they're picking up you know so here's where they might say well yes there is a general adaptive mechanism of paying attention to what your parents are doing um, but that's just a learning right the, whereas uh, James would say about that kind of example that that's just one instinct like trusting. Mm -hmm. A mother yeah. overriding, overriding the other instinct, yeah. which is the fear of heights, which to me sounds more plausible. But and I and I think James is is 
more true to the facts. I don't know if James, there's very sort of Jamesian observation, which is that adults around the world, like I say, adults in Chicago, I just studied with them of high school children in Chicago. You ask them what they're most afraid of. This is like downtown Chicago. And it's not cars or guns. It's their, their two most biggest fears are spiders and snakes. <laughs> yeah. And you think, you know, and I think this, it's natural to say this. It's just this instinctive pattern. But, yeah. but Taylor, I'm still stuck on something you said before about different notions of nativism. And I realize one of the weirdnesses here is that James is having a conversation that is sort of orthogonal to the sort of standard textbook debates in my field. In my field, the debates tend to be, is language innate, our understanding of objects, the physical world. Um, you talk about Liz Belke's work on suggesting kids have innate understanding of objects. And there's an enormous, and other, and other critics who argue against their understanding of number of time sort of Kantian categories. And there's an enormous amount of debate, 90% of debates over, is, is this right or is it wrong? And you don't have much, except for maybe moral psychology, on whether children have an innate propensity to climb. The, the eternal moral question. So we ask that the parts of James's uh, discussion, which really rings sort of contemporary, are when he talks about morality, like, you know, schadenfreude and, you know, anger, kindness, and love. Those are debates we have. But a lot of instincts, no... I don't know anybody who's studying whether kids have a natural instinct to climb. Yeah. Or even collect. I mean, there's a lot of work on or play. Collect. There's a lot of work on yes. play, right? Yes. And, and I think a lot of people do believe that just that, that play is a feature of, of animals in, in their youth that is if, that has evolved and it's good. And that it probably just takes very different forms depending on what environment and what species, obviously. And I agree with you. And the, the overwhelming feeling I had after reading uh, the habit chapter that we discussed earlier was, and I said this to Tamler, like it feels like he knows just as much, if not more than we know now. And as I was reading this, you know, some offensively gendered language and, and language about savages aside, it feels like this is not a bad description of human psychology that is actually fleshed out more than most you know, than like I'd say a developmental psych chapter in an intro psych textbook. Right. And it, it's, it's humbling because there's no experiments in here. Yeah. I mean, occasionally, you know, yeah. Mr. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so took some chicks and then blinded them. Or he tells uh, an anecdote about a dog that was like digging around a, a Scottish terrier that was yeah. like digging at a carpet. Yeah. But only did it for four days or something. Yes. Or or this casual suggestion for a study um, <laughs> where you you take a baby. The question is, if you stop the child from normally walking, will they walk fine after the delay? So you you blister the soles of their feet so they're unable to walk. And he just suggests this, like he just for a bachelor, I think, or some, no, someone who like a widower, so a man a man alone with a child. Yeah. No, he says something like I can't find, I can't find the quote, but he's like, you know, hopefully someone comes along and is brave enough to actually do this, you know, because we don't. We don't know right now. <laughs> In light of this report, one may be tempted to make a prediction about the human child. Say if the baby were kept from getting on his feet for two or three weeks after the first impulse to walk had shown itself in him, a small blister on each sole would do the business. <laughs> he might then be expected to walk as well. Then he says, it is to be hoped that some scientific widower left alone with his offspring at a critical <laughs> moment may ere long test his, his suggestion on the living subject. That's wonderful. This is what life, you know, we haven't talked about human subjects committees, but that gets in the way of a lot of the best work. <laughs> I like the assumption there that like if the mom were alive, she would never, she would alive, never allow it. <laughs> well, if the mom were alive, what would he be doing with the kid? I mean, he wouldn't have FaceTime. You know, just... but, but, he's, but he's a scientific widower. He's stuck with the kid. You know, he has, he has a little needle. So, you know. Uh, um, 
a lot sometimes his observations are interesting that they don't ring true. And you know, your mileage may vary in this. And again, he's talking to this male audience, but the possession of homes and wives of our own <laughs> makes us strangely insensible to the charms of those of other people. And then he goes on, you know, strangers we are apt to think cannot be worth knowing, especially if they come from distant cities. The original impulse which got us homes, wives. And friends all seems to exhaust itself in his first achievement and to leave no surplus energy for reacting on new cases. And, you know, let's stay clear of, of this other cases. You know, I, I, occasionally I want a new house. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Don't you have like well, four? I, I, <laughs> you know, I had the same thought. Like, at, like with the habit one, it was just it, I just felt like I was nodding the whole time where. But this one felt like there are times where it shows the limits just observations right. about yes. life and a lot of the times it just seemed like observations about uh like an, a certain aristocracy uh, at the turn of the 19th century or something right, like that right. you know he was writing for his audience <laughs> he was he was, um it's in uh, some ways it's an insensitivity of the sort that he is pointing out earlier that paul started with but he's failing to ask the question is it the case that i am just yes. just noticing people around me and universalizing that's right. so, so his problem isn't that he doesn't do experiments i think his problem is that his his work is too weird mm -hmm. as psychologists would say it now too western educated industrial rich democracy and he do well more cross-cultural though of course, of course he says you know you know miss miss mis, mr spindle came from the islands and told me this wonderful story <laughs> the br yeah. about brute savages about about the brutes who <laughs> though they walk around naked are still you know <laughs> covered with shame when a westerner gaze upon them yeah that's his ethnography it's about mr seward <laughs> yes. or whatever yeah um, I mean, what about these principles, though, of like and the relationship between instincts and habits? Um, because mm -hmm. he says on the one hand that instincts like the whole their whole function is to like build proper habits. But then also instincts can be inhibited by habits. Yeah. And maybe this goes back to, to what we're talking about him being an empiricist. Where I think he tends to view the instincts often as getting things going yeah. and then fading into the background. They just yeah. set things up. He says. Um, that um, that what goes on is the, the inhibition of instincts by habits is a really big thing. But then I, he also I, says, and I'm trying to find the quote, that the goal, like the whole reason we have instincts is f for the formation of habit. If yeah. I'm yes. I, yes. I really like, you know, I don't know how true it is, but I really like this point because this gets us, th this interaction between um, instincts and habits with instincts being sort of the scaffolds that allow us to even act upon the world to begin with. And then once we act upon the world, consequences occur. And based on those consequences, we shift over what we're doing. That seems like such a nice account of like what's going on. Like, And he's sophisticated. He's, he's sophisticated and appreciated. Instincts don't have to show up at birth. Right. They can take their own development. I think at one point he talks about sex mm -hmm. and he just intelligently gives a sort of example. You always give that sexual desire often emerges quite late in life. After you know, after the baby years, yeah, he and, also seems um, to think it fades away really quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a whole lot of stuff. But how old was he when he wrote this? When this, well, you pretend 20 years writing it, I guess. He's, there's a whole massive industry uh, of pills that yes. would support, yeah, but that's because saying. we already desire it, we just can't do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, now that that might be a terminological disagreement <laughs> between you and James. But yeah, he's very, he's very much, and I, I don't know how true this, how empirically true this is, very much in a power of the young. There's a passage, I, I don't know where it is, where he talks about, you know, when you're young, 
you could think about new ideas and you could you could explore. And then at Fates, and then at the age that we're all at, um, we just stuck with our original ideas. Yeah. And when when other ideas come, we are suspicious of them. So, yeah. so I have this quote in front yeah, of good, me, good. Uh, Paul, and you, this is the one that you posted on Twitter. I did. I did. Right. Um, so you oh, say, here. so here, here it is outside of their own business. The ideas gained by men before they are 25 are practically the only ideas they shall have in their lives. They cannot get anything new. Disinterested curiosity is past the mental grooves and channels set the power of assimilation gone. If by chance we ever do learn anything from about some entirely new topic, we are afflicted with the strange sense of insecurity and we fear to advance a resolute opinion. But with things learned in the plastic days of instinctive curiosity, we never lose entirely our sense of being at home. There remains a kinship, a sentiment of intimate acquaintance, which even when we know we have failed to keep abreast of the subject, matters us with a sense of power over it and makes us feel not altogether out of the pale. Uh, if I could write one passage like that in my whole career, I'd be done. <laughs> that is just that is just lovely. I, I, um, I you know, I, when you first posted it on Twitter, my first instinct was re to rebel against that and to come up with all these things that I've got, you know, new interests that I've gained <laughs> since I was 25. And then I, when I really thought about it, and it's it's like I've ch I've changed my views on things, but when I have. It's in relation to some other thing, you know, that I had acquired before I was 25 and went and, and I was really actually struggling to come up with some brand new thing that that really gripped me since, you know, since that age. And like a lot of the stuff that I'm just more mature about or know more about yeah. the, the groundwork was was set. And I had to kind of see his point there without kind of wanting to. I had yeah. the same fucking experience and I was like, oh, oh, how cute of him to completely ignore the fact that like, you know, so we're still learning, you know, we're, we're surrounded by new ideas, especially in an educational context. And then I was like, you know what, like the, the say, I say I read a hundred papers on moral judgment in grad school. Let's just say, I don't know how many I read. Um, those are the ones that shaped my views. Those are the yeah. ones, you know, that th like it's, it's depressing. And James gives us an out. He says, outside of your business, um, it's, right. it's rare. But even inside of my business, I fear that like I don't, you know, I just have variations on a theme. And that's why I think people's first papers are often like the culmination of what they've been thinking about for 25 years. And then the rest are just variations on that. Um, but when it comes to other things like aesthetic appreciation, you know, there's this there's data on like music, musical appreciation, yeah. right? And so Spotify can tell, because you have to sign up for an account, they know when you were born and they know what you listen to the most. And it turns out that people uh, listen the most to music that came out when they were 14 or 15 years old. Yeah. And that's pretty fucking depressing, but it's not wrong. I've, I've stretched, I've certainly made an effort to stretch, but past 25, I don't know. And I was interpreting it more in terms of like, some new category of thing yeah, that you're yeah, yeah. now going to become excited about too, because I wasn't even in the business that I'm in when I was 25. So it's like that part of it, you know, has to have changed, um, once I got older, but like, yeah, in terms of just my general tastes and things that I get excited about and intellectually curious about and want to pursue, that's, that's kind of the same. Like I was always kind of into music and I'm still kind of into music, but not very into music. I was always, I really loved movies and, you know, maybe didn't know enough about them. And now I know more about them, but that's not a, that's not a new yeah. thing. Yeah. That's just more yeah. appreciation and maturity in terms of how I understand these same things that I've always, that I've always liked. 
Uh, so and- this guy, Phil Corlett, uh, who's at Yale actually, responded to my tweet with a paper uh, arguing against it because it said that uh, Nobel Prize winners, and it differs from area to area, often get the award for, for projects that they began later in life. But I wonder whether that really counts. It's, it's still in your own business. Yeah. yeah, like there's there's a way in which you can own, like especially in today's world where where there is so much knowledge, there's so much to learn in any given field. I think now it might actually take, you know, 25, 30 years in a field to even get to the point where you can make yeah. a contribution that would be deeply meaningful. But that's not really what James is saying. He's just saying like, like you were interested in that shit when you were 25. Like it's not, I mean, obviously there are exceptions. Like I think, you know, like, I don't know, I got way more into like technology later in life but interesting you to had me that is, kind of nerd yeah i was a nerd you. i was always a nerd but yeah. what's interesting to me is my resistance psychologically my resistance yeah. to hearing that is what's most interesting to me totally and, and like because it does it seems to close off a whole <laughs> yeah. world of possibilities <laughs> yeah. to you you know uh yeah. i like that after that he says whatever individual exceptions might be cited to this are the sort that prove the rule <laughs> yes it's yes. like okay so now he's now now he makes it unfalsifiable don't even try <laughs> yeah but 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 I, I feel there's a deep truth in it which is that i and and it makes me introspect on my own intellectual conclusion so i was making fun of a little while ago about the sort of predictive processing models of the brain but maybe i'm just responding to them negatively because they're new yeah right you know maybe it's maybe there's sort of a, a get off my lawn right. philosophy that runs through you know our work and it is interesting how much we rebel against this idea <laughs> because I think it's such an in yes. it's, it's a constraint on our freedom and especially like Americans <laughs> we do not like constraints on our freedom and the way I kind of came to terms with it as I had my reckoning was yeah but there's within those things yes, that yeah. I that I was curious about and really kind of passionately attached to there that's a huge world that I could live 10 lifetimes exploring i don't need to now get into like schoenberg or something like that you know yeah part of it is just simply pragmatic like i i admire architecture but i'm not going to get into architecture now because like the cost of of getting into something at this stage is really high like it requires a lot of dedication and time and you kind of have to just you know pick your pick your battles when it comes to that so so learning more about things that i already know seems like the sweet spot because, you know, have all of this, you know, knowledge. You're set up. Yeah, you have like scaffold. It's not a developmental term, scaffolding. I have the scaffolding. I wonder if just there are cases of people, you know, to use Laurie Paul's language, people have transformative experiences that actually changes them so deeply that they start getting into completely new things. I don't remember if she ever discusses anything like that, but. We need to have no, her. Yeah, th- those are good cases. Maybe where things happen mm-hmm. to you. There's a great little um, part of the Maltese Falcon, the novel. Uh, it's, it's not in the movie, but mm-hmm. he tells this story, um, Sam Spade, of a guy who had this wife and children. And he was a good family man, had a good job. And then all of a sudden, like a beam fell from like a construction site and came within like millimeters of killing him. And then he disappeared. And Sam Spade was hired to track him down. And when he tracked him down, he found him in Seattle with a new wife, (laughs) a couple of kids and like a good steady job just like before. But in the meantime, he had like, you know, he had gone a little crazy and he had traveled and he had done all these new things. And, and, And the point of the story that he says, the reason I always like this story is this is a guy who lived life as if 
beams weren't falling on his head. Uh-huh. Then all of a sudden lived very briefly lives as though beams were falling on him. <laughs> falling on his head and then went back to living life as if beams weren't falling on his head. That was exactly the same as it was before. That, that strikes me as probably like some transformative experiences is it may get you to branch out very temporarily, but soon it will, it will fade and you'll go back to your own instincts and habits and stuff like that. That strikes me as plausible. I I have a family member um, who, all of a sudden, through a series of events, decided he, he he's in a medical profession and he wanted to give up his comfortable life and go to Africa, where he had been before, and work in a small village and make a real difference to people. And his wife was panicked, whose relative I was panicked, and and like, oh my God, we uproot our family, our kids, and this is he was extremely serious about it. And at one point, somebody gave her the advice: just wait. And in two weeks, it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> who made it out. And 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 I, I have a feeling that all these things, the people who have a heart attack, the people who beams just missing them, it changes their life, new appreciation, totally new rules for a month, a couple right. months maybe. Yeah. And then and then they just go back to where they were. That's sort of one of the upon rewatching the Sopranos, that's sort of one of the themes. Uh they everybody gets shaken up by death or near death, and you think this is the moment where they're gonna change. They're gonna change and they just go back to being exactly who they are. <laughs> There's never progress made. You know, the character of this is the moment when AJ won't just stare blankly at people. <laughs> I've never seen a show incorporate bad acting so well into a character. <laughs> the yeah, no, I, I think that's probably right. And of course there are exceptions, but it does seem like uh that a lot of the time you settle back, you know, something ruffles you or rocks your world. But then the, the the water settles again afterwards. Hey, I wanted to ask you guys about, for some reason, I was fascinated at this claim about the instinct of what he calls appropriation or acquisitiveness, um, yeah. where he says that collecting things is an instinct. And there's a sentence, he says, out of 100 students whom I questioned, only four or five had never collected anything. He was an early social psychologist. And then I was like, wait, is that true? And then I, I was hard pressed to think of somebody I know who hasn't collected something. Yeah, that's such. A, I, I also sort of underline that and talks about postage stamps yeah. and so on. I wonder if I think it would probably a lot of people, include, particularly if you include like uh, uh, Pokemon and stuff, right. uh, virtual collections. Yeah, which I think is, yeah. is hitting the same little. And, and and that's an example, which is I bet if I went to Google Scholar and type, you know, the collecting instinct, yeah. I'd find nothing. nothing. Yeah, and yeah. and it's such a great question. Is he right? Do we have an urge to collect a hoard? There's there's certainly evidence. You see it. You, like one one reason to believe something is an instinct is that if you see it as an extreme pathology, you can imagine right. it's a drive gone crazy and certainly hoarding. Right. When he talks about that. That's a great example of one of those where it takes a mind debauched by learning to even ask that question. But yeah, I was a, I don't even consider myself like a collector yeah, personality. Right. I don't really collect stuff now, but I collected baseball cards. I collected coins for a while. I collected comic books for a while. Like, uh, yeah. And I don't know anyone who didn't collect something. Is this uh, one, I don't remember. Is this one where he makes these gendered claims, which, you know, in some cases are reasonable, but I, I don't know if, if, if this one is, is one of those because he uses boys as his example so often. Yes. It's hard to know. Because yeah, it. A... it would strike me maybe this is more of a boy thing than a girl thing. Yeah, I would think so, uh, too, until I think of things like, you know, stuffed animals, uh, dolls, true. like, yeah. you know, things that, so you're <laughs> saying, that women are hardwired to love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Things that they ought to love normatively. <laughs> yeah. when, when, he, when he does mention women, it's it's typically not good. <laughs> it's, no. It's... I'll, I'll read what quote my uh, – 
as soon as a wife becomes a mother, her whole thought and feeling, her whole being is altered. Until then, she had only thought of her own well-being, of the satisfaction of her vanity. The whole world appeared <laughs> made only for her. Everything that went on uh, was about her was only noticed so far as it had personal reference to herself. She, she, she asked of everyone that uh, he should appear interested in her, pay her the requisite attention, and as far as possible fulfill her wishes. Now, however, the center of her world is no longer herself but her child, which he then goes on to say is one of the most beautiful things in, yes. in the world. Unless the, the poor wench is barren. <laughs> <laughs> but it, like he, he must have known a lot of like Paris Hilton. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that does not strike me as what uh, women are. All women are pre-child. <laughs> no, is yes. he? Is that tongue-in-cheek to some degree? I don't think so. I don't know. I, like he doesn't strike me as a tongue-in-cheek kind of guy. He kind of has a light tone, but I don't think he's ever he's ever kidding. Yeah. Um, so, has, have either of you ever read his brother? I haven't. I have not. Yeah. Tamler was an English major. I. Uh, read the bostonians which i remember liking but i don't remember the first thing about it and i read portrait of the lady which i remember not really liking um, is, is there, are there any similarities jump out yeah the, the the prose style you know like these long sentences that occasionally have these flurries of at like transcendent like virtuosity and brilliance but then no they're both they're both great like wonderful writers but it is of a certain style that if you might be in the wrong mood, it can be a little precious or and it's easy to make fun of if you're so inclined. But I am not that I'm not so inclined for most for the most part. With But still, I mean, I, I know what the sentence is that you're that you're talking about. But in some ways, prose is great. I just I'm, I'm spinning through just looking at parts I marked up. And he says constructiveness is as genuine and irresistible instinct in man as in the bee or the beaver. Whatever things are plastic to his hands, the things he must remodel into shapes of his own, and the result of the remodeling, however useless it may be, gives him more pleasure than an original thing. The mania of young children for breaking and pulling apart whatever is given them a more, uh, is more often the expression of a rudimentary constructive instinct than of a destructive one. Then he says, okay, blocks are the plaything of which they are least apt to tire. Yeah. And, you know, it's true. You have kids, you, you, you know, you give them a the box and then they play in a box instead of uh, in the, they <laughs> right. like blocks and everything like that. Yeah. And and again, it, it makes me sad for my field. You know, you've 99 percent of, of the work in developmental psychology is so much less interesting than asking two kids have the sort of constructive instinct and in studying it and looking at variation. Right. I mean, look at this. Part, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say part of that is the emphasis on experiments. Right. It's liberating when you don't have to organize your career and your articles around them. Um, you can be more observational yeah. in this way. Right. And, you know, you know, it helps to be kind of a genius when it comes to that. But um, Right. I think the sad trade-off is that you have, say, one person who opens up a field, like, say, Liz Spelke with object recognition. Yeah. And then you have just, like, a whole gajillion people doing stuff that she started Rather than taking, you know, taking one of these paragraphs from James and starting something something new, and but you know, part of that is just so just sociologically, like incent the incentive structure to, to to in philosophy, I take it as well, to add to the body of literature and critique and improve and refine. Like that's how science is supposed to be done, um, and so we we would discard somebody who wrote like this now because the burden of proof is a lot higher. So his, right. his paragraph on curiosity, which is wonderful as well, you know, that's, 
you can't just say that you need a, you need you need a, a psych review article that covers the yeah. the 200 articles on on curiosity which which is sad but yeah yeah and and and, and maybe it it should be that way because i don't want to read what somebody who's not william james has to say <laughs> right <kid. laughs> um but but you know when 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 you both said at the end of discussion of William James's habit that, that it feels like this is stuff which is better than what's published now, I agreed with it and it filled me with such sadness. It, it is one would hope psychology would be a field such that we'd read the current work and say, look at how we've expanded on the ideas of William James. Look at how we now understand the things he's talking about. We know he was wrong there, he was right there. We discovered phenomena, he, and and of course we we there's things in development psychology that aren't in here, right. but. It seems like this is capturing so much of what's inter- what's interesting, and we just have not have not met up with the challenge. What would you do? Like so, like what could happen in a way? Because you know, we we've often approached this with kind of almost defeatist attitude. Like yeah. it's just the incentives are aligned in such a way as to make this kind of impossible. But is there a way to allow for this kind of thing and allow for really talented people to approach psychology in this way? I, yeah, let, I mean, if, if I knew the answer, I'd be doing it. I, I, I have a, a, a kind of an answer, which is that there are some people who who do do this. It's just the progress is a lot slower. But I'll give you an example from from Paul's own lab. Right. At some point, Paul switched from doing a lot of the language development stuff that he was yeah. known for. And he read, you know, some Paul Rosen article on disgust and got interested in it. He got me interested in it. And we started doing that work that at the time wasn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it. And then I was doing stuff on moral judgment, which really didn't, wasn't that done at the time, but because Paul and Peter Salve were both super supportive of it, they encouraged it. I think that as, as advisors and as professors, that can be our job. Right. And I think it does happen sometimes. It just doesn't happen all in one person. We know so many people who have tremendously high H indexes and publish a lot and are experimental workhorses. But I think some of the great people in our field are people like Paul Rosen, who you just mentioned. And Rosen is this guy who was very interested in food and disgust. And I, I um, you know, we started off as as doing operant conditioning, class conditioning studies, and just a very imaginative, clever person. And I think our field is at a point where we benefit from such people. You know, it doesn't work that way in physics. I'm sure in physics it's just, you know, experimental genius and theoretical sophistication. But we are at a stage where a good eye is is really important. I just wanted to say some stuff like that people, you know, his this modesty, shame section, the um, curiosity and the sociability and shyness in the play section, those are great. And those have been followed up quite a bit. Um, all of yes. those things like the self-conscious emotions and the tendency to, to play. And, and there's been a lot of recent work on curiosity, um, uh, which I don't know if it was inspired by, by what William James said, but at least there's some, I have some optimism. It's just that, again, it's like, you know, 18 people like study one thing, not, not one person studying 18 things, you know? Yeah. Right. And, and then there's the question of whether they've made progress on it. So like habits, people have studied habits. But I, don't know, I had a lot of friends. I have some friends in the business world, and there's this new book that came out called, I think, Atomic Habits. Oh yeah. That the my my friends who had listened to my podcast was like, it sounds like he's saying the exact same thing that William James said in that article. And so, but of course, this guy is built. So you know, you can do run a lot of experiments, but if you end up just kind of saying yeah. the same things, but now being able to cite a bunch of studies, 
that's that's not exactly progress. It might make you feel better about uh, about what you know, but like, well, it might you know. it might be progress if in psychology there is we obviously have a lot of introspective and observational access to psychology, right? So it is something that so it is it's possible that somebody who's very observant and very smart, like a James or even a Piaget would say mm -hmm. things that then you might say, well, I, I want to make sure that it's right. And so a hundred yeah. studies get done. And if you believe those studies, you could be like, Oh wow. Like they were right. And, right. and I want to be able to champion that and say, you know, not everything has to be this completely counterintuitive stuff. Like a, a savvy ob observer of, of human nature might be able to have predicted all this stuff. And I think that's what's going on here. The pessimistic take is that uh, the, we all have these kind of similar intuitions and uh, the hundred studies are just confirmation bias experiments <laughs> where we're right, just like, yeah. it seems obvious that, that we have a play instinct. So we design studies to show it. <laughs> yeah. I, I noticed this an oversimplification. My feeling is people in the hard sciences do not read work from over a hundred years ago and for anything else but curiosity. Right. Because right. what's the point? <laughs> right. Um, but we could read this and profit from it. And, you know, I can imagine, I can imagine you take the habit, the advice in the habit chapter, kind of revise it and send it to the, you know, Harvard Business School Journal um, as, you know, you know ex expert, five tips for improving habits. Totally. You know, but don't biologists read Darwin to go back to your example about the hard I was sciences? wondering about that. My, um, my, my bet yeah. is honestly, they don't. Yeah, they. I think they read him because he's very readable. Origin Species is a wonderful book, but, but I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it's even interesting that that the the first edition was is sort of more accurate than later editions because Darwin kept amending it because he was a sort of affable guy and they talked about Lamarck, so he changed it for he put in some Lamarck and so on, and and that's not supposed to happen in science. Yeah, and so I I don't I don't think so. My bet is you could be a top notch evolutionary theorist and never read Darwin. Right. And it would only be out of shames, you know, because of what yes. like, uh, expected. Yes. But they probably read Darwin because, like, for the same reasons we read. It's enriching, like, it's enriching your sense of the possibilities of maybe what you can do. And maybe that's even true for, phys you know, like reading some 19th century physicist or something like that. It that's allows right. you to reorient maybe in a way that would be healthy and get out of your own bubble and the own, like, fashion that your field happens to be in or your sub-sub-field happens to be in, right? Right now, I imagine it's still profitable for that, but this is different category than that because this is you're actually learning stuff about like habits or instincts or that you didn't know before. Um, yeah, and like, he's sort of been in a you know probably the worst psychology to read is stuff between you know 1960 and 1990 because because <laughs> none of it will replicate. It's old experiments with you know 14 subjects and right. and stuff you're not going to believe. It's the worst of all worlds. It, it's it's experimental losing a lovely anecdote but it, but it lacks the power of a good experiment uh, just getting back to the article for a second i was interested in this his claims about our fear of supernatural oh yes uh, like he has this really cool discussion of our fear of 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 ghosts or things that we take to be you know not of this world or that can't be explained naturalistically that strikes me also as plausible as something that's a deeply rooted instinct 
uh, and I'm trying to find it. Now. It but begins with fear of the supernatural, the word supernatural. And he actually just kind of points out, well, since there are no ghosts, right. it could right. be an adaptation. <laughs> not exactly how he put it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, well, he says science has not yet adopted ghosts. Yes. So we can only say that, uh, uh, he says, in spite of psychical research societies, science has not yet adopted ghosts. So but, I think he sort of views it as a as sort of a perfect storm theory that, that you know, ghosts combine all sorts of things we've evolved for other reasons inexplicable sounds darkness loneliness moving figures half discerned but he says it produces a strange emotional curdle in our blood <laughs> to see a process with which we are familiar deliberately taking an unwanted course uh, anyone's heart would stop beating if he perceived his chair sliding unassisted across the floor I, I yeah I'm, I'm wondering if he's saying more than that it's more than just a combination of these other things this is like its own thing it's its own thing that we're that we're scared of for whatever reason yes and the mysterious right that sort of unexpected movement and then my professor my friend professor wk brooks at johns hopkins university i like it's my friends talk about yeah. a, a large and noble dog being frightened to some sort of epileptic fit by a bone being drawn across the floor <laughs> by its red dog not, oh, not see. Yeah, there's this great there's a great set of videos of like people showing sleight of hand card tricks to like orangutans, you know, or like yeah. babies, and they just freak the fuck out. Um, but te- but Tamber- I've been told not to trust those. <laughs> they were stooges. They're <laughs> um, it's fake news. <laughs> but uh, but Tamler, he does say the horror, this supernatural horror, is probably explicable as the result of a combination of simpler horrors. So uh, the dreadful must combine loneliness, darkness, inexplicable sounds. Um, so I think he's saying that. But okay. what I what I was thinking when I read this is. You know, there is this subfield of the evolutionary origins of religious belief, and a lot of it is sort of pointing to the the cognitive mechanisms that were adaptive in, in you know, across most social and other situations that we then, you know, like we see intentions in where there are none. We see causality and animacy where there is none. We make spurious correlations. We, you know, that tree branch moved and my grandma died and that must've been a spirit. Um, I've never really heard the fear aspect being uh, mentioned as like perhaps at the heart of belief in the supernatural, but it totally makes sense. And I think one of the first things, so like my daughter, I've raised her to, absolutely not believe in ghosts but like she expresses doubts sometimes because of like no no i swear there was something in the dark and like there was no explanation for it and i bet you that is a pretty strong origin for supernatural belief totally yeah i was pouring like a glass i I had like a glass of like uh, i was making myself i don't know like a bloody mary or a screwdriver and my daughter was there and i poured the uh, vodka into this glass and the glass just exploded (laughs) <laughs> and we were freaked the fuck out by that like and i'm not i'm not as convinced as you are that there are no ghosts and i tell her that they're like i think there probably are ghosts and especially now that like glasses explode yeah, I, don't, like, I can't do like i can't continue doing a show with you. <laughs> <laughs> i mean there are things there are spirits of a certain kind but i also think like he says it produces a wait, peculiar wait, are you, wait, are you serious Wait, what's happening here? 
Do you really think, I there, think are there might be ghosts? <laughs> I'm not like totally convinced there aren't ghosts. I mean, I've never been visited by one. Um, uh, nobody has. But... You'll be happy to know that nobody has been visited by a ghost. <laughs> I don't know why you're so sure about that. Why you're so dogmatic about that? There's even there's. I guess my point. Uh, we we don't have to debate that the existence of ghosts now because okay. that's probably a losing. I mean, I, for me. I was going to say it's they're they're all aliens. They're tricking you into thinking they're ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it is a peculiar kind of horror that is interesting in that like I and, and which would relate yeah. to what you're saying Dave like maybe that's connected to the origin of uh religious belief in some way because it's so un, it's it's different than the kind of horror that you have from uh natural things that you can see or right you combine sort of the things that 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 make noise in the dark with no like plausible physical explanation for it. And, you know, along with some other cognitive mechanisms, you probably get really close to there being a spirit haunting you. Um, it's a really interesting idea. You know, there's a read a lot from the cocksire of religion. Everybody says, why do we believe in them? And then the idea is, well, once we believe in them, then they're scary. Yeah, but, right. but but this inverts it right. and says we yeah. have this sort of fear of ghost-like phenomena. And if you're afraid of something, then that thing exists. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. If it explodes, you know. Yes. It's a screwdriver yes. glasses. Yeah. Also mean, how do you explain my glass just exploding? Yeah. That's a good point. The science That's is still the science still isn't there, you know. It's I like, did look it up actually because we were like, okay, we just have a ghost. Like, what do you do? Like, if you live in a house with ghosts, like, what are you supposed to do about that? Like, should we put the house on the market? And then I googled something about, and it, apparently, like, there are certain kind of cheap pint glasses that that can explode with like. <laughs> that's not very. That's not very parsimonious. <laughs> I know like, the ghosts. They don't believe the that. Ghosts. I, like if they have different, like exposed all of a sudden to different temperatures. It, I don't know. Like I don't remember the, the scientific explanation, but it, it it was enough to make me not a hundred percent sure that <laughs> our house was. I'm not sure if this is true, but I think realtors, if you did sell your house, you'd have to disclose that there was a ghost. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, I, I know. I know you had to. I, I would, we were shopping for houses in Toronto, and uh, there was a suicide house. And then our re, the realtor made a point of telling us that, and I think they had to. Huh? That there was a suicide. So probably haunted as well, actually. Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be kind of fun. Like, you know, friends during lockdown. Why do we assume ghosts are malevolent? <laughs> I, right. I know. I don't yeah. know. Same. I think actually the ghost in our house is more of a prank ghost. There's other things that, <laughs> it's like that a the ghost does. It's, it's like yeah, a kind of like you know, like he'll make ice pop out of the fridge sometimes, or she, or she, I shouldn't say, or whatever yeah. they, they, or, or they, just as a they. I they, yeah. I think that your use of ghosts is much like my father's <laughs> use of uh, blaming the people who would clean our house, which is like whenever he would lose something, he could blame it on the woman who cleaned the house. You know, so like yeah. if you sat on the remote control by mistake because you just didn't realize and it changed the channel you're just like ah, it was a ghost it's not my clumsiness <laughs> it's serving a role all right but i mean the glass thing was not my clumsiness like eliza was watching as i did it and she saw that neither of us were touching the glass so so you're like a modern day william james <laughs> as i sat with my daughter the, the, the glass exploded and then it was a ghost plainly and I had a, a vertiginous baffling of yeah. the expectation that my glass would uh, would stay solid I actually what he says, not to change the subject, but what he says after it goes, he talks about corpses. And that I found really interesting, which is yeah. corpses freak us out. And I wonder whether that could actually be an, a spur to supernatural beliefs, which is a ghost is a body without a soul. Yeah. And by some sort of subtractive logic, you might assume that souls exist separately from bodies and, and maybe can bounce around. Yeah. Yeah. But corpses are freaky. Yeah. I don't, I actually, 
outside of a funeral home, I don't think I've ever seen a corpse. I don't even like seeing like animal corpses. No. That's oh, I find it. It's actually it's, this is a very William Jamesian discussion. But um, when I lived in New Haven, my there was a dead squirrel. My dog dragged it over, and I I was frozen, and I just would yell at the dog, "Drop it, drop it!" And I didn't know what to do because I was not going to go near the dog and displace it. Hmm. Yeah. I found it so upsetting. Yeah, and and as what a puzzle, I do, I, don't know I say, why. Jen, the. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's a uh, possum, baby possum in the attic. The corpse. Can you deal with it? I'm very, I'm very comfortable with dead vermin. You know, baby possum. I just right. grab it by the tail, whip it around, smash it on the on the guitar. I mean, on the guitar, on the garage. I, <laughs> if you were comfortable, I would pay you to fly over and and get rid of something. I, be worth it. I had, I've, I've had to get rid of lots of mice, and everybody oh. around me freaks out. But, but I think no. like I, I had to get rid of a baby deer that died under my under my porch really? yeah and because it must have been sick and the mom leaves it and it was just like a little bambi it was like a little doe with spots on it and i was freaked out at first but and i called some old guy to come help me remove it and he's like all right help me and i was like man i was paying you so i wouldn't have to touch this thing but then i did, did it and i was t- like did you have to touch I it i did yeah i picked it up and it was with fine gloves? with gloves yeah uh, you're like a sociopath it was like, fine it was fine <laughs> I, I remember when you hit a deer like right before we recorded yeah. and like it fucked up your car. And then you just like, I hate deer. Yeah. The, I was like, yeah, like Louis C.K. Like I want to give him AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, all right. Should we wrap up? Great. We should just, we should have a whole series of works with all the William James. Uh, it's always fun. Yeah. Thank you so uh, much, Paul. Well, thank you for having me here. And uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. <laughs> Just a very bad wizard.